Hello and welcome to the Chatham with Charlie podcast, where we discuss nature, adventure and everything in between. Sorry I've been gone for two weeks, if you cared or even noticed, but I'm back today with a great one for you. But before that, you can find me on Instagram, as always, at charliepage.img. All my wildlife photography workshops and tours are at charlieswildlifephotography.com. And now you can also email me at chattingwithcharliepod at gmail.com. So if you are a fan of the show and maybe you want to give me some ideas, some guest suggestions, yeah, you can speak to me there. So at chattingwithcharliepod at gmail.com. But now for today's guest. He's an ultra runner, an adventurer. He ran the whole way across the Sahara Desert and 100 miles through the Arctic in his first ever running race. It was such a pleasure to hear his stories. It's the incredible Mr. Ray Zahab. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today, man. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Charlie. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure, mate. Absolute pleasure. So, right, you've had an incredible career. You've done some amazing things, which hopefully we're going to get onto. But I guess the best place to start is where did this life of adventure and ultra running begin? Well, you know what? I get asked that a lot. And to be honest with you, and this may sound like sort of a common um, theme, I um, I got into uh running and adventure and all of these things after sort of a life transformation i you know up until I, I was 30 i was unhealthy you know smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or more and drinking way too much and i just was sort of in a mental headspace where i um i just didn't really have anything that i was really passionate about in my life or anything that was driving me and so I didn't know where to turn and and you can imagine I mean this is like 1999 right so this is a long it's a long time ago pre-social media you weren't you know scrolling the walls of people to get inspiration and all that jazz and so I um you know I just I my 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 younger brother actually became sort of what would be my greatest inspiration he was a a climber and is a climber and a and a trail runner and mountain biker and doing all these really cool things and i thought geez you know if i did the things that he did maybe my life would be different and that sort of set the stage um for things that i would do in the future and the direction that my life would take so in order to do the things he was doing i obviously wasn't able to you know be smoking a pack a day and it was just sort of it was this this time it was almost like an epiphany like it was transformational to go and do some of these things with him. I remember the first time we went ice climbing and barely making it up my first waterfall, of which I, I was top roped, meaning he had this rope attached to me and it was you know, around a bunch of safety equipment at the top of this waterfall and he was down on the ground. So belaying me, basically pulling on the rope as I was going. And uh, I remember getting to the top of that waterfall and I've told this story so many times that you know, getting to the top when my arms were like noodles, my heart was racing. The hardest thing I'd done physically in my life to that point, it's 30 years of age and looking down at him and he looked so small and thinking to myself, wow, this is what it must feel like to be an Everest climber. And thinking to myself, you know, great things that we do in our lives, you know, they come at random times, but they're very relative to us as individuals. And you really only have one life and you have one opportunity to do some amazing things and it's how you choose to look at life and it's how you choose to approach life that really 
um, changes your philosophy on a lot of things, I guess, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean, man. So do you feel like when you were doing these challenges and going out there with your brother and pushing yourself physically, was that, as well as improving you physically, of course, was it also just helping you generally be a better person? Oh, yeah, well, it's 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 even more. It's like I, I've said it many times before, the running would become my greatest teacher because it would teach me things about myself, about the world, um, about people, um, about what I was able to do in my life. And so as I was learning um, and t- from the adventures I was on, it, things just became more expansive and one thing leads to another. I believe that when you're living your life in a way that you're growing and learning, new things happen. They just sort of come into your life. And the next thing you know, you're, you're doing some cool stuff, you know? Yeah, man. And speaking of doing cool stuff, in 2004, you run the Yukon Arctic Ultra. Uh, do you want to explain a little bit about what that race is and what it entails? Yeah. So the Yukon Arctic Ultra is a 100-mile race um, that takes place uh, in the Yukon. Well, they have multiple distances. Um, and it takes place in the Yukon every winter. It was my very first running race. I had never done anything, you know, quite like that. By the point I, I went there, so, so you know, it was a short period of time. So from, from 2000 uh, to 2003, 2004, I went from, like, literally my life changed 180 degrees. So, you know, I went from pack-a-day smoker to guy who was climbing, and I was doing all these things with my brother and hiking and adventure racing, and got into mountain bike racing in a really big way. Like, my body, it just, uh, I had this endurance capability hidden underneath all of the smoke and tar and everything else that my brother has and my brother's always been an amazing endurance athlete. So I had, I had that in me, which I never knew until I tried because I'd never tried anything like that. And one thing led to an art, uh, another, and I read an article about this race in the Yukon and my brother was much more of a trail runner than, than I was in those days. I really did not really fancy running as much really preferred to mountain bike. And, um, you know, I read this article and I thought, wow, this is extraordinary. This race is amazing. I wonder if I could do something like this. And um, I entered it just because I was so mesmerized by the people that were doing the race. It seemed so normal on the surface that obviously had to be extraordinary um, it, it underneath. So, you know, physically, it wasn't a physical thing doing one of these. I mean, obviously, it's a physical thing, but it was, it was so much more than that. And so I wanted to know what these people knew about themselves in the same way that I wanted to learn the things my brother knew about himself when I made my first sort of shift into the outdoors. So I entered this race without any expectations and I ended up winning it. And I thought, wow, maybe I should do this for the rest of my life. It's kind of how it started, you know? <laughs> it's just amazing. Like your first ever running race and you do a hundred miles through the Arctic. Like it's crazy. So what were you thinking before? Were you thinking like, were you confident? Were you nervous? What were your expectations of how you thought you were going to do in the race? Well, I'm Canadian, so I knew the winter part of it. I thought I could probably handle. Um, The adventure aspect, I'd done a ton of adventure racing before that. So I was pretty sure I could handle that. The thing that I was really unsure of was, of course, the running that distance. You know, I'd never spent that much time on my feet ever. And so that, you know, for sure was the... uh, you know, that was the, the scariest part of it. And actually, actually, I mean, I, you know, being solo, being out there alone, because there's not that many people that do this race, uh, at least back in those days. And so, um, 
you know, to do something like that, you know, in the Yukon wilderness where all the Sasquatches live. I mean, it was pretty scary, you know, I gotta say. <laughs> so how long did it take you to run the race then? Oof, dude, you're, it's like, that was uh, not, that was 15. How many years ago was that? 16 years ago? 15, 16? I don't know. It was a long time ago. I think my running time was, I'm going to say 24 and a half. And they had a four hour layover uh, where they checked all your gear and all that mandatory stuff. So it was like 28 and a half. Or something. I, I, I'd have to look it up. I'd have to look it up, but I'm sure it's out there. Yeah. So, I mean, after you did that Yukon Arctic Ultra, you then went and did a load of races back to back to back. Could you feel yourself improving as an endurance athlete, as an ultra runner, like doing these events so close together one after another? Well, I mean, I was doing the races, you know, ignorance is bliss, as they say. And I was doing these races, not really knowing what I was doing, you know, and I was sort of, you know, learning as I made my way. And I had a lot of help from great people out there that were helping me, um, you know, some of the bigger names in ultra running at the time, like Lisa Smith and Marshall Ulrich were helping me out to, you know, teaching me what I needed to do or how I needed to prepare. And I would just bounce from one race to the next. And, uh, you know, I got into the stage races and did quite well in those. And I just like the whole aspect of the adventure component. I continued to race my mountain bike a little bit. And then I had the opportunity to run across the whole Sahara uh, which we started in 2006. Yeah. And then that sort of, that's sort of where racing sort of finished off for me. You know, when we, when we did the running the Sahara project, 7,500 kilometers in 111 days, um, it completely shifted in my mind uh, what, what I felt I personally was capable of doing, but also, you know, why I was doing what I was doing, just being out there and learning um, and experiencing by being on expedition was so powerful that um, I just wanted more and more uh, to make that that happen, you know. And so that that sort of became that became the thing for me, you know. And it just became what I would be about, you know. Yeah. Well, just quickly, you mentioned the numbers there, but I just want to say them again because they're just incredible: seven thousand five hundred kilometers in a hundred and eleven days which is more than 170 marathons every day, constantly running, running, running. Obviously, physically, that's such a hard task. But mentally, I mean, because how long are you running for each day? Say 10, 12 hours more? Oh, yeah, you're running each day for, I mean, you're, you're running for each day for as long as we needed to. I mean, some of those, it averaged out, it averaged out to 70 kilometers a day for 111 days, right? But in truth, Truth be told, it was um, actually more like the start was something like 40 a day, maybe, and 50 to until we got sort of warmed up, quote unquote. And then as we got cooking, we had a lot of days in there that were 80, 90 plus, like many, many days, I recall, us running 90 kilometers. Uh, you know, we had big, big days out there in the desert, you know, and so... I mean, by the time we got to the end of the expedition, I, it was abundantly clear to me that, you know, this was, this was what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And, um, you know, my goal would be to um, share what I was learning with students all over the world and, you know, take, because students were following along with the expedition like crazy. Like kids were just loving it. Right. And so because of that, 
um, you know, it, because we were on this adventure, simply a thread tying together a bunch of stories, students were, you know, following the expedition to the live website, but then learning about culture, economics, agriculture of the region of the desert that we were in that perhaps they had never considered before. Right. So it was a super interesting opportunity for students and for us. And as I was making my way, Charlie and Kevin and I, the three of us were making our way. We were learning about a culture and, you know, water crisis and everything else that we otherwise would have never known about had we not been on this adventure. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it becomes a very powerful thing, you know? Yeah, for people that don't know, the trip was actually made into a documentary as well called Running the Sahara. So you can go and watch it and go and see see how they got on. It's an incredible watch. I, I do recommend it. But I wanted to ask you, um, physically obviously hard as we've mentioned, but mentally, how do you keep yourself going through those long running days? Are you listening to podcasts? Are you listening to music? Are you going into a meditative state? Are you talking with the guys? How do you keep yourself going? Well, it's different on every expedition, right? I've done, if you include the expedition, my own expeditions, the expeditions of our foundation, Impossible to Possible, and the guided expeditions I do, I've probably done like 35 major expeditions of one kind or another. And, you know, I, on those solo expeditions, when I'm solo, I'm spending a lot of time thinking, you know, what's interesting, I found over the last probably two years is when I'm running at home, I live in an amazing town uh, in Quebec and we're you know very close to a, a large protected park in the hills and the mountains. And I find myself trail running for hours at a time in the summer or, or skiing in the winter. And I'm listening to podcasts more than I am music sound. So it's just, it's just, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's something to occupy the time, but when we're on expedition together, if I'm with other people, most of the time I'm, I'm, you know, I'm engaging with them or we were listening to music a lot. We, we shared iPods out there in, um, in the Sahara, you know? Yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask you about, because one thing that stood out to me from watching the documentary was the people that you met along the way. And there was one particular encounter with a little boy that was left all on his own in the middle of the desert. Do you want to explain a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, and that was just, what, so you have to remember, like 111 days compressed down into a film that was an hour 42 or whatever it was. And we were very lucky. We had an Academy Award-winning director that knew, you know, that he basically took exactly what happened and compressed it. But there were so many stories that got left out. Like, that was just one of the many times that we ran into people out in the desert with fascinating stories. But this was one time, one night, we were, it was getting close to dark if I recall, and um, we saw a small little plume of smoke on the horizon and we came upon this young guy who was out there in the desert alone um, and, you know, getting his dinner going basically. And um, his dad had left to go and find water. And, uh, you know, here's this little boy, he couldn't have been more than, she's. I'm guessing somewhere between eight and 10 years of age. And he's just out there in the desert, all alone, middle of nowhere. And, um, you know, tending to his meal and, and all that. And, you know, I, 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 through interpretation, we found out, I think he'd been alone already for two days. I mean, it's just extraordinary, you know, but you know, that we learn, here's the other aspect of it though. People hear these stories about meeting people in remote places and, you know, literally, I've been in some of the remotest places you can be on the planet. There are people living 
pretty much in every nook and cranny of the planet. But the amazing thing to me, the lesson I've taken about people over all these expeditions is we have more in common than we do different. We, we really are connected as a species, you know, and it is fascinating to me how we laugh at the same jokes and we, you know, it, it, it's, it's really something else. And so I think um, from that aspect, um, it, it, you know, I, there, we have a lot to learn from each other, you know, so. Yeah, it's true. We, we really can just connect with anyone on some level, I suppose. It's true. I think that was shown, you know, there was one point when you were feeling quite down and you were running through a village and all the kids started running with you and completely lifted your spirits and changed your mood around. Totally. Yes. True story. And, you know, that happened as well more than once. You know, like we would we would be out there and then these, these we'd see kids in these communities. I mean, often. And often as in how many communities we went through, I can't remember how many there were over that, you know, 111 days, but there was a number of communities that we went through. And, um, you know, every time, you know, when you see kids, they would be so stoked that you were there that it just made, it made it all worth it, you know, and it, and it, and it truly was uplifting, you know? Yeah. And you can see it, man. You can see it uplift you through your facial expressions. It's beautiful to watch, but Right, one thing, I've got a few more things I want to ask about the Sahara Desert Run. Uh, one thing that struck me as really interesting was that you didn't even have the permission from all the countries to cross the borders before you'd set out. So there's one part when you're coming up to the Libyan border, but you didn't even have permission to cross there. So then you were deciding like, okay, should we go a different route? And I th you were going to have to go a more dangerous route that took you through Chad, which was you know more dangerous for, for one reason or another. Were you really debating uh, taking that route? We, we debated that for sure, and we weren't sure what we were going to do, but um, we eventually uh, decided that we would, um, you know, press on to the Libyan border and just see what happens, you know, and that, that was all, that was all like, everything you saw there was captured in real time as it happened, you know, like, it literally happened just like that. We found out <laughs> basically steps from the border that we were going to get in, you know, it was crazy. It was a crazy time, you know, but you're, when you're so determined to do one of these expeditions, the amount of, of things that you have um, in your way, you know, to getting to it's it, the, the odds of completing these things are really uh, astronomically bad. <laughs> they can be. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know what though, it just shows you because I mean, you could have been running those extra miles for nothing, but you decided to take a gamble, take a chance. You went there, you got to the Libyan border and then you got past that and you ended up completing the whole thing. So, you know, I mean, there's got to be a lesson in there somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and, and, What's amazing about it is that the three of us did it together. Yeah, because there was a part where uh, Kevin wasn't sure if he was going to be able to continue. Yeah, exactly. And there's a million things that happen like that as well on these trips. And you have ups and downs and everything else. But, you know, it's, it's, um, we were very happy and very proud to get there. And I think on the last day, we ran over 150K in the last day. Like, it was crazy. You know, it was a crazy thing. So, but you know what? I've done expeditions since then, believe it or not, that have been even more difficult. They may not be as long in duration, but they've been more heinous. Like when I crossed the Atacama Desert in summer 
2011, I did that solo. I ran north to south. There was no big film crew. It was my buddy, Bob, who is the co-founder of our charity, Impossible to Possible. It was me and I, I was running. He was doing crewing and a buddy of ours from Chile most of the time. And that's it for the whole 1200K. And so I was going running across open desert in one of the hottest, driest places on the planet in the middle of summer. And man, it was hard. Like I had many days, 50 degrees plus Celsius, you know, and not a tree, not a blade of grass in sight, you know, and it was so it was super, super difficult. I can imagine. God, how how good is that shower when you come back from these desert expeditions, man? Oh, yeah. Well, dude, any of the any of the times. Any of the times. And you know what I, I've learned in the last few years, like when we crossed the Namib Desert in summer uh 2018 uh that was you know close to 2000 kilometers 1850 kilometers south to north on that expedition we had a way of every couple of days taking like one liter of like river water or whatever we could find and using like getting an entire shower in that one liter you know so it it uh it's amazing what you can do you know yeah, God, it makes you think how much unnecessary water we waste in our showers, you know, that we usually have. But right, I want to speak a little bit about your charity, Impossible to Possible. Um, yeah, do you want to explain a little bit about what it is? So Impossible to Possible is a youth-based foundation. And um, what we do is um, take young people, 16 to 21 years of age, on expeditions all over the world that are sort of modeled on my own expeditions, but they're not like 20 days, 30 days, 40 days, whatever. They are a week at a time, a week to 10 days, and they're learning based. So these youth will go to a remote part of the world and through their adventure, teach a curriculum that uh, of resource material that has been created by our education team about specifically relatable and about the place that they're in. So to give you an example, um, going to the Amazon jungle and teaching biodiversity or going to, uh, you know, we went to Utah on one of the youth expeditions and we studied the rise of the dinosaurs. So we studied paleontology. And so on these youth expeditions, you've got these four or five uh, youth ambassadors that are out there doing the run and they're running from one destination to the next. And then each day you have a faculty of 10 to 15 educators, photographers, filmmakers that are helping them to create content. It gets uploaded to a live website for schools to participate in. And so it becomes a learning opportunity for schools to join in. And um, yeah. So have you noticed like the running have a positive impact on the kids, maybe in a, in a similar way that it did to you when you first started? Oh, absolutely. I mean, to, you know, because like with everyone that uh, does anything that's challenging in any realm, whether it's endurance or something else, the arts, whatever, when you're challenging yourself, you learn things about yourself, right? And I want to keep in mind, everybody's on a level playing field on these youth expeditions because everything we do is 100% free. So these kids don't go into it, uh, one having a better gear than the other. Everybody gets the same gear. Everybody gets their expenses covered. And so everybody is coming from different backgrounds, different ethnicity, different um in completely different backgrounds and so in all aspects and so they learn from each other they have to co be cohesive on the team but they learn from each other as well as they learn as individuals from the expedition that they're on when they're challenging themselves so it's it's for sure transformational 
Yeah, that's incredible, man. And congratulations on it all. It's amazing what you're doing. Uh, is there a place that people can find Impossible to Possible so they can keep up with your stuff, keep up with what you're doing? Well, there, there is Impossible, then the number two, possible.com. And of course, you know, through my social media, you found me. I, you know, I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I have a, a page there and Impossible to Possible has a page, Instagram as well. And I, typically I post on my social media before we're posting on Impossible to Possible because we're all volunteers in Impossible to Possible. The social media will sometimes go, you know, months at a time without a post on it. Um, but uh, when we're on an expedition, we're posting constantly. So, yeah, if you're interested in what Ray's doing with Impossible to Possible, go check out the website, go follow them on the socials and all that stuff. But, right, so I'm sure you've got enough stories to fill 10 podcasts, but I want to ask you for one, which, unfortunately, I have failed to segue into smoothly once again. So I'm just going to have to ask you, what's the scariest moment that you've had on an expedition? Well, I've had a lot of scary moments. I mean, it's just sort of, you know, it's one of those things that, it kind of sort of comes with the with the territory, if you will, to use a, a more often used term. Like I've had, uh, you know, I've broken through ice in, in the Canadian Arctic on a fast moving river in winter, which I didn't anticipate happen, happening. And I literally almost lost my life, almost got pulled underneath by the current and got out in the nick of time, was still basically hypothermic. And, and that was, you know, horrible experience and very scary. I've also, when we were crossing the Namib Desert, to be followed um, for great distances by troops of baboons was really disconcerting. You know, I, I, it's funny, you know, I, I can't remember every single instance because it's, uh, you know, when I reflect back, like we talked about the Atacama Desert earlier. In the Atacama, there was one point when my crew couldn't get to me because although, and this was a long time ago, so I've been back to the Atacama many times since then and regions of the Atacama that I crossed that were barren no, like no humans had been in period now have mining operations, right? So, I mean, the landscape is changing, but I can remember at one point being in a region of the desert where I was supposed to meet up with my team for a resupply of water at like literally 30, the 30 kilometer mark of the day and um, them unable to access me because unbeknownst to me, I was in a mine, but you would never know because nobody was mining. It's just that it was owned by a mine. So way further east of me uh, where they were trying to get to me by a gravel road and then r- drive across an open desert on a four by four. Um, there was a gate and a fence and a guard saying, uh, no, this land is owned. It's, you, you, you can basically, you can't go on. And they're like, well, we got this guy out there running across it. They're like, yeah, sure you do. So I, I didn't get a resupply that time until 50 K. And I thought for sure I was just going to perish in the in the heat and shrivel up and they'd find me well preserved because it's the driest place on earth a hundred years from now but you know so there's there's always those circumstances but instead of reflecting on those like i always seem to remember the amazing things like the sunsets or the starry skies like stars in the sahara desert so there was so little light pollution that the skies it's like you can reach your hand into them they're so dense with stars it's crazy. Like the sky looks four dimensional almost for lack of a better term. Like it just looks so deep. And so, you know, things like that or, or amazing, incredible wildlife that I've seen over the years or meeting people that immediately uh, open their, their homes and, you know, food and everything else and, and kindness 
from strangers like I'd never experienced, you know? And so those are the things I tend to remember. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. And your descriptions definitely now made me want to go stargazing in the Sahara for sure. Um, Right. So before we finish the podcast, I've just got one question that I want to ask you. And that is, what is one rule, guideline or philosophy that you try and live your life by? Well, I mean, there's many, obviously. um, And I tell long stories, as you can tell. But I, you know, honestly, I think I think that the one of the most important things is I try never to talk myself out of taking a chance or doing something. I'll explain what I mean. You know, prior to 30 years of age, I would never take chances, never take risks. I was afraid of a negative outcome. So I was predetermining that something bad was going to happen or wasn't going to work out. So what was the point in trying? Now, instead, in since, you know, post 2000, since I changed things around, I instead look at things in a different way. I look at the glass half full and I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'll give X, Y, or Z a try. Why not? Who knows what'll happen, right? And so I think it's like just having that mind shift that why not? And I am not concerned about what others think necessarily. I'm willing to try something and fail at it if if I do, because I know I'm going to learn from it, right? And so I, I think that there's something in there. And, and that definitely um, has been one of the guiding principles for me. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. And what they say, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And I think you embody that saying more than pretty much anyone. So it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, Ray. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll stay in touch. 100% man. Thank you for listening to Chatting with Charlie this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, share with your friends. If you're feeling generous, you can give me a five star review on Apple or Spotify. And until next week, guys, have a good one. 